Well, friends, it's a privilege to be here this morning and to open God's Word together, and I'd love to pray as we do that. So let's speak to God. Father, we thank you so much that you are with us. We thank you for giving us this Word. And Father, by your Spirit, might you write it on our hearts so that we might know you, trust you, and obey you. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Will you think when you get to where you want to go, finally you'll be happy? But then you get to where you want to go and you're just as miserable as you were. In fact, you're even more miserable because you no longer have anything to aspire to. Those are the depressing words that the musician Moby spoke about a moment in his life which was really the height of his career. He was staying in a penthouse hotel suite in Barcelona and the other hotels around him uh, had Madonna and Bon Jovi and P. Diddy in them and he was overlooking the city. He was about to win an MTV Music Award. He just had a party with his friends to enjoy this incredible view and as they went home, he walked around this hotel room with tears in his eyes, weeping, thinking to himself, if only these windows opened a bit more, I'd just jump out of the building. We're all looking for a good life, for a life of blessing. And we look in different places for that. We might look to our career or to our family or to our creativity or to our possessions or to pleasure. But eventually, all of those things let us down in some way. Maybe your family forget your birthday. Or maybe your career doesn't go the direction you want it to go. Or maybe your stuff just becomes boring and, and wears out. Well, today we come to a text in the Bible that is 3,000 years old. And I want to ask, how can this actually say anything to us about being blessed, about knowing God's blessing for our lives. Well, a bit of context about this passage. We've been, for the last few weeks as a church, in the life of David in 1 and 2 Samuel, thinking about uh, this ancient king of Israel, the most significant, the most famous, the most important king in Israel's history. And today we're closing off this section with Saul's demise and his death. And uh, here we actually catch a glimpse of how God longs to bless people, how God longed to bless Israel in 1000 BC and how God longs to bless us today. And it's not ultimately through our careers or through our families or possessions or money or other things. Those things are God's gifts. But the ultimate way God wants to bless the people of this world is under the king who he sets on the throne. And today we have this huge contrast between King David and King Saul. King Saul, the proud people's ruler, who in the end comes to his own death, cold towards God. But David, this shepherd whom God has chosen and set his spirit on and destined to be the king of Israel. And both David and Saul actually show us something of what it is uh, to know the blessing of God, to know God's ultimate plan to bring blessing through his king. 
So the first thing I want to look at together is the fall of the proud people's ruler, the fall of the proud people's ruler. In other words, it's the fall of King Saul. And uh, by the way, this is Saul of the Old Testament, not Saul of the New Testament, who becomes Paul. Uh, And Saul of the Old Testament is everything that a women's weekly royal special was looking for. He's tall, he's handsome, he's been on successful military pursuits. And the nation of Israel really liked him. He was the people's choice king. But he's the classic case of a leader who starts with so much promise and then ends so badly. In chapter 26, Saul is hunting David down. He's in this region called Ziph, southeast of Jerusalem. And reading from verse 2, So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 select Israelite troops to search there for David. He's searching for David not to try to help him, but literally to wipe him out, to kill him. And as we look at Saul's life, we can see things grow and just go from bad to worse. It started when David was lining up in battle against the giant Goliath. Uh, Saul was just cynical. He said, yeah, you can do that little boy if you want to do it. And then his cynicism turned to jealousy when people heard that David had a reputation of killing tens of thousands and him only thousands. And then that turned to fear that David might end up taking the reins of the kingdom altogether and that turned to hatred as he became more and more agitated about David and that turned to outright murderous intent He wanted to wipe him out. Now, just as an aside, it's not the main point today, but as a lesson for us, uh, there are things in here today to watch out for. That jealousy that's growing in your heart, I want to ask, where, where is that leading to? That anger that's growing up in you, where, where is that going to go? Those fixations that you keep mulling over in your head and you know they're not good but you just keep thinking about them what's the end result of those going to be that hatred that you've allowed to grow up in your heart where is that going to go let me say that there's no future for that way of life and if you don't believe me just read the life of Saul just see how these small things grew into big things for him and utterly destroyed him Saul's heart had grown cold to God And what germinated in his heart was just this array of evil attitude and evil behaviour. And God gave him over to a godless life and in the end to a godless death. By the time we get to chapter 28, Saul is now consulting a witch. And it's one of these funny passages in the Bible. Uh, And Saul's consulting this witch because he's already wiped out all the prophets from the land of Israel. He's gotten rid of them and now he wants to hear from God so he finds this witch in Endor and he asks her to bring up Samuel, the dead prophet. And the Bible never shies away from the reality of the spiritual realm. The Bible consistently tells us there is a spiritual realm, both good and evil, and God is sovereign over it. And so this witch under the sovereignty of God, brings up the dead Samuel. And this is what Samuel says to Saul in chapter 28, verse 17. The Lord has done what he predicted through me. 
The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbours, to David. And then the conclusion of all of this is in chapter 31, as Saul's three sons die in the heat of battle and Saul, afraid that he's going to be taken over and abused, falls on his own sword and kills himself. It's the fall of the proud people's ruler. And all of this was a lesson for Israel. Where could they go to find blessing? Where could they go to find God's favour? The answer was not with Saul. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 16 says, Like a roaring lion or a charging bear is a wicked ruler over a helpless people. God's desire is to bless people under his good king. That's what he wanted to do with Saul. And Saul could have done that. And God would have blessed it, but God tore the kingdom away from him. And Saul's leadership time and time again was all about Saul. And his future was all about Saul. And his ambitions were all about Saul. And the kingship was all about Saul, not about God as it should have been. He's the original individualist, really. And that's not a compliment to him. He probably woke up in the morning and his first thought was, What can I do for myself today? How can I improve my life today? Bad things happened to him and he thought to himself, how can I turn this to get ahead in life through these events? There was no room for God in his life. God was completely missing from his worldview in the end. It was all just Saul, 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 and then Saul's funeral. It's a devastating way to live life. And it's completely opposed to the kind of life that God wants for the people of the world. Uh, We just heard in the prayers, uh, wonderfully prayed, that back in Genesis chapter 12, that God promises Abraham that he will bless him and bless his descendants. And what was the end result of that blessing meant to be? In Genesis 12 verse 3, all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. God's plan through Abraham and through his descendants was blessing for the nations under his good king is what we learn in in the time of David and Saul. But Saul has shrunk that down just to be all about himself. He's lost sight of God's promise, God's plans. And so I want to ask this morning, do you find yourself a little bit like Saul sometimes? Do you find yourself just being a bit too interested in yourself. I know that I can be like that. In our work, in our social media use, in our clothing, in our social lives, in our ambitions, in our dreams, often we're signalling that life's about me and life's about me moving forward and how I can impress others and how I can look out for number one. So as Saul dies, this is the fall of the people's ruler. But where does David fit into all of this? Because you might be thinking, well, David is a king as well, uh, and he's a human king, and he's got failures and flaws just like Saul did. Is he actually any different to Saul? Well, the second thing I want us to look at is the rise of God's innocent king. In these chapters, I want to call David imperfectly innocent. He does sin. He does make mistakes. 
He does fall over. He does compromise. But through it all, he's imperfectly innocent. God keeps him innocent of great crimes against Israel and against himself. As we saw last week in chapter 25, he avoided taking vengeance on Nabal, even when Nabal was being a jerk to him. In chapter 26, even with 3,000 people chasing him in the wilderness with Saul, he's never violent towards Saul. He's never violent towards the nation of Israel. In fact, at one point in chapter 26, he takes Saul's spear and his water jug to prove how close he came to him and how, how, how much he could have killed him. And he stands at a distance and holds them up and says, See, Saul, I'm innocent. I could have taken your life. And he's proving to the king his innocence. But the very next chapter, David does some soul searching. And he just kind of thinks to himself and muses to himself. And there's something that's absent in this. He's not asking, what does God want me to do here? He's not saying, what does God promise me here? He's not praying about things. He just thinks to himself, uses his own rational thinking, and he decides Saul's going to kill me at some point. And so he goes and lives with the enemies of Israel, the Philistines. This is a grave error for David. And even in this mistake that he makes, God keeps him innocent. He never once raises his hand against the Israelites or against God, even though he's living with their enemies. In chapter 29, he gets very close. He marches out with the army of the Philistines against Israel. And if they'd gone into battle, David would have raised his hand against the nation that God had blessed, his own people. But just as they're marching out, the king of the army has his commanders come to him and say, we don't trust David. And the king says, David's fine. What's wrong with David? And three times the king of the Philistines says to David, I find you innocent. Chapter 29, verse 3, I have found no fault in him. Chapter 29, verse 6, I have found no fault in you, David. Chapter 29, verse 9, I know that you have been as pleasing in my eyes as an angel of God. And even though he sends David away listening to his commanders, he pronounces David innocent. Now, the, the irony of this is that David was not innocent to the Philistine king. If he'd really known the truth, he would have known that David had been performing raids within his own country against his enemies. And he thought that David was raiding the Israelites, but actually David was raiding other foreign nations and he'd lied to the king of the Philistines. But with great irony, Achish... This Philistine king speaks words that are wiser than he could have known. He says that David is innocent. And it wasn't the kind of innocence that the king of the Philistines had in mind, but it was true innocence, innocence against God and against God's people. And so we see the rise of God's imperfectly innocent king, David, and in all of this, there is a warning and an encouragement. The, the warning is this. Why did David go and live with the Philistines at all? It's because he just thought to himself and he, he, he relied on himself 
and he failed to trust God's promise and God's protection. He didn't listen to the words that Abigail had spoken, the words that Samuel the prophet had spoken, the words even Saul had spoken to him that God was going to protect him. He just took matters into his own hand. And one author made this reflection that that which is begun in prayerlessness ends in misery. That which is begun in prayerlessness ends in misery. So let's take that as a warning that whatever we're doing in life, we need to do it in dependence upon God, in trust of him, in prayer to him. But there's, there's also an encouragement here, and that is that God protects David in everything that happens in the winding paths that he goes on, even amidst his own mistakes, God is directing David's course and keeping him from massive errors. And in Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes to the church and he says something very similar. He says, In all my prayers for all of you, verse 4, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Just as God did with David in preserving his future king, God does with us, his church. God doesn't make half Christians. He doesn't get you halfway there. If you've trusted and followed the Lord Jesus Christ, God will bring you through to the day of completion. He will sustain you in order to bless you. Last year, I did a nursing home uh, church service for some people at Christmas time. And one of the guys lying in his bed at the service was someone I recognised. He'd been a member of the previous church I was a pastor in. And I recognised him, but he didn't recognise me. He didn't know much of what was going on. He couldn't follow the service couldn't speak anymore, couldn't walk. He was in the late stages of dementia. But the promise here in Philippians is that what God began in Bob, he will bring on to the day of completion. What God began in you, he will bring on to the day of completion. God longs to bless his people under his king, with relationship with him, with life, Abundant life, with grace, with forgiveness, with generosity, with eternal life. It's what God longs to give and we must be patient and wait for it. I was reading an old commentary on this section of 1 Samuel this week and excuse the old language but I want to read some of it. The author said this, Faith and patience are frequently conjoined in Scripture as graces so intimately connected with one another that they cannot be separated. If we are firmly persuaded that God will perfect all that concerns us, we will patiently bear all that he is pleased to lay upon us because we know that no evil can befall us which will not have a happy termination. It's a bit of a mouthful, uh, but in other words, God will do what he has said he's going to do in your life. Nothing's going to stop him from doing it. So hang on, keep trusting, and keep being patient. Maybe like David, you've got some regrets in life. Maybe you've got years of your life you regret. Maybe five, 10, 30 years of your life you wish you could go back and change. Well, the sad part is we can't do that. 
But the great part is that if you are a child of God, trusting in his promise, that he will bring to completion the work he started in your life. Salvation in his son. So we see the rise of God's innocent king, David. Imperfectly innocent. But actually, if all we had was David, it'd be a great model of a godly man, almost, with some mistakes as well. But we wouldn't be blessed by God, not in the way that we really need to be. Because in the end, that blessing is only found in one place, in God's ultimate king. And so finally, I want to consider the rise of God's sinless king. Just as David was pronounced innocent by the Philistine king, so a thousand years later, Jesus was pronounced innocent by the Roman governor Pilate. And while David took matters into his own hand and decided to do what he was going to do, Jesus never did. He trusted God completely in every moment, every season, every hour of his life. And Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And that is great news, because if David had made one of those grave errors, he could have never been the king of Israel. And if Jesus had sinned even for a moment, he could not offer us anything. Because just like a person in a hole can't help someone else in a hole, someone who's a sinner can't help another sinner. But Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 tells us, then he, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We have this sinless, righteous, perfect, innocent king who can give us grace and peace because he's utterly qualified to do so. Never a moment in his life when he tripped up. Never a moment when someone caught him out and got him to do something wrong. Never a moment when he compromised, even just in his thoughts. Not for a second. And growing up, reading about Jesus, I thought it's pretty good that he's innocent, but it's what you'd expect of God's son, isn't it? But the more that I go through life, I have to say that the more amazing this is, someone who could navigate this world and all the relational complexity of life and all the things that come up, and the more that I see the scandals around us in the world, the more thankful I am for Jesus, the one who never tripped up. And because of that, he can give us God's ultimate blessing, grace and peace from the throne of grace, grace and mercy. There's only one place in the end that God promises to bless us and that is under the rule of his good king on the throne. Outside of that, there is no ultimate blessing from God. There's a lot of Saul kind of action there, just putting God to the side and living a godless life with empty promises, things that will never fulfill us, things that will never sustain us in the long run. But because our king holds up under pressure, because he's someone who never failed, then his promises won't fail and his gifts to us won't fail. And we will have perfect relationship with God through him. 
grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that as David's descendant, that he is the one you promised, the sinless, perfect king on the throne, the one who can give us your ultimate blessing. So we thank you for him today. Father, in all the struggles of life and the things that go well and the things that don't go well, help us to hang on to him and receive that grace and mercy that he gives us in our time of need. In his name we pray.